Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode is our two-year anniversary, and it's the Christmas holiday season, so get ready for a relaxed chat about the Earth observation sector as we see it, plus some other good bits and bobs. <laughs> that wasn't in your script, that bit. I know, bit I know. <laughs> see, that's how crazy things are going to get. <laughs> I, love, I love the relaxed chat uh, part of it, a relaxed chat. A nice bit of Val Dunican-style chat. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got a nice knitwear jumper on at the moment. It's not a Christmas jumper, but... Excellent. Uh, shall we do the news then on the 9th of December 2019? Yep. There's an article being published in Nature about using the planet Dub data mm-hmm. to measure carbon stocks and emissions. And... This is an interesting paper. Um, firstly, it caught my eye because it's in nature. And this is an interesting paper because it gives um, an overview of really where we are. And it talks about some of the challenges related to open source data and the spectral resolution, but also talks about the challenges related to data that you pay for. There's also a statement in there that says the drawback is not only in cost for the very high resolution data, but it's also in area coverage. And it's quite an interesting point because it's one that is sometimes often glossed over, especially when you start trying to map at a larger scale. We're now mapping at, I think they said 3.7 metres using the dub data pixel scale across, they've done the whole of Peru. So yeah, check this out. This is a nice article on nature, sort of drawing the wider public perhaps into this idea that we can start estimating and directly measuring the carbon stock. It's interesting that they mentioned both coverage and cost as potential limitations. I don't suppose they mentioned what the overall cost was for planet data at 3.5 metres for the whole of Peru for, for multiple dates. No, I get the impression that it was probably gifted to them. I think that a lot of the government work that gets done is service-based because it has to be reproducible and it has to be able to try and hit certain targets, both temporally and also in terms of cost. The fact that there is that cost barrier then means that you end up using the open data, which obviously you know we're big fans of, and that, that's really great that it gets used. How can the commercial company still make enough money and feed into these services? I think that's going to be a really interesting transition. Yeah, papers like this that show the benefit of it. It's really, really interesting. So it's two ways, isn't it? It's the, the data access and the access to the environment to be able to utilize this data at that scale. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to just highlight a book that I came across. This is The Manual of Digital Earth. And this is an open book. It's really cool, actually. The fact that it's openly available is pretty amazing. They are just trying to pull together what is the sort of key areas about digital earth at the moment. So it's downloadable either in EPUB format or PDF. If this is something that sort of tickles your fancy and digital earth and, and that type of things are something that you want to get into or, or are already looking at, then I think this book will be 
a valuable resource to go and check out. Is it a brand new book? Yep, copyright. 2020. 2020, yeah. This is amazing. Great. Thanks for finding this. And wow, what a resource. Yeah, I mean, 850 pages. I'm going to have a look at this because there's some fascinating topics in the headings. Remote sensing satellites for digital Earth, satellite navigation for digital Earth, and then visualization for sure. Save. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to pinch your news item because I think it's probably the most important thing that's happened since we last talked. And that is the, the ESA ministerial. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was happening as we were talking to Chris Holmes last time. The big thing was how well funded, in fact, it was overfunded, Copernicus was. This really is an amazing time to to be involved and working in this sector. I think Germany put in half a billion euros. That's one heck of an investment. I don't know if you saw, there was a pie chart that was basically breaking down the budget by different disciplines. And I loved it. On Twitter, someone said, oh, why can't Earth observation be classed as science? Because we're all scientists. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And then I looked at the pie chart and Earth observation out on its own took up this massive wedge. And then science was comparatively really small. And I thought, um, I'm quite happy being Earth observation, actually. <laughs> yeah, keep that pie chart in mind for when we have a chat after the news. Yeah, I found them. The numbers on Copernicus, um, Germany, 518 million euros. France, 350 million euros. Italy, I think that is, 370 million. The UK, 170 million. Spain, 170 million. It's crazy. And what Jonathan Amos was sort of live tweeting was basically saying that we can now get on and do these next six Sentinel satellites. Okay, so here's a news article that might interest you. The Group on Earth Observations, so GEO, and Google Earth Engine have announced a call for action for projects to monitor the pulse of our planet. I think this is really good news because effectively... What is going to happen is you put in a tender and GEO are going to choose 25 project proposals that will receive licenses for Google Earth Engine that are set to be valued up to 3 million US dollars. So that's the value of those licenses. And the the idea here is to broaden the use of Earth observation data and try to tackle significant societal challenges and improve understanding of the planet in general. Yeah, I think this is really cool. You know, licenses valued at three million. I mean, we don't know, or I don't know how much a license is for Google Earth Engine. Do you? No, I don't. And I don't know if it's on a all you can eat or X number of hours or how they break it up. Because that's a lot of money. Quite often these things open up more questions than they actually answer. I think it's a great thing. There's so much power in Earth Engine. Um, okay, let me finally mention this really nice thing that I saw Descartes Labs have produced, which is a wildfires map. And they're using AI. They're being able to predict where active fires are, where the hot spots are. And this all has been written about on CNN Business. It's really cutting through into the mainstream media using satellite data to detect wildfires, which with this service has been available since July. So they've obviously had time to sort of really sharpen it up and, and test it out. And there's a link in the LA Times wildfires map, and you can dive into this, uh, into the data and have a look. And anything that helps, you know, identify these things and, 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 and protects people and landscapes can only be sort of applauded. It was an interesting use of satellite data, I think. It says here that the current time to beat is nine minutes. That's how long it takes for Descartes Labs to report a fire from the moment the images are captured. Wow. These satellites are coming from the um, 
the GOES, so okay. geostationary yep. satellites. So, oh, get in there, geostationary satellites. There you go. That's great, isn't it? That's, that these are being used for for this reason as well now. That's for, oh, that's made my day. That has that geostationary satellites are being put to use for more than just weather monitoring. I mean, I know they can do a lot more than just weather monitoring, but yeah, that's great. Um, before we finish the news, I'm just going to say a quick heads up to go and check out mlhub.earth. It's been updated. We've mentioned it before on the podcast, but today, the 9th of December, there's been a big series of announcements, I think, in relation to AGU and what's happening over there from Radiant Earth Foundation, all about their machine learning hub. Today is a big day for ML Hub. We haven't had time to sit down and look through it and find out what's going on. But uh, yeah, go and check it out. And that's it for the news, I think. Yep. So we're just going to have a chat about various different things. I think you've got a few ideas about what you want to say. I've got some probably completely different ideas about things I want to say. And maybe somewhere in the middle, we'll be able to edit it together as a a coherent conversation. Okay, well, maybe it's worth starting on what we've previously said before, and then how wrong we are with that. And then (laughs) things that I want to say, and then things that you want to say, or we sort of mix it around. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it that way. Okay, so let's look back on our failed predictions for <laughs> 2019. And I, I re-listened oh, that's good of you. to our one-year anniversary episode, which was basically a reflection on our one of our first episodes where we talked about what we might be predicting in that coming year. And we spent most of this episode talking about how wrong we were at, <laughs> at predicting at that point. And uh, it, the good news is that we followed that same trend into... 2019 with being how wrong excellent wouldn't like to disappoint (laughs) (laughs) there were a couple of things that made me sort of smile and and chuckle we said there'll be more launches and more data and undoubtedly this is you know a common trend that seems to be happening we had a good old discussion about analysis ready data and saying that we felt that in 2019 it was going to particularly kick on i think that the kick that it's got from my point of view has been in the work that people like chris holmes have been doing with the cloud um, optimized geotiffs and the stack catalog i've seen less of talk of it in the uk yeah i'd agree with analysis ready data it's gone very quiet in the uk and i don't know whether that's because people are getting on and doing it or whether they're just giving up talking about it or what yeah analysis ready data there was a big thing about analysis ready SAR data i remember sort of at the beginning of the year mm. and that again has gone very quiet certainly this year there haven't been as far as i'm aware any events in the UK about analysis ready data. So yeah, interesting. Maybe we are at that point because, you know, Sentinel two is being delivered in level two A. Why would you download one one C unless you wanted to correct it with your own algorithms? But the non specific Earth observation user, how do they feel at the end of twenty nineteen? Are they any more enlightened? Um I would hope so. I think there have been some good showcases of what Earth observation data can do, just in terms of of the impact that EO data and the way it's handled can have on people who don't use Earth observation data day by day. So some of the stuff around, say, the Africa Data Cube or the, um, the Data Cube that came out of Australia, some of the visuals, I think, are really good at engaging people who don't use Earth observation all the time. I still think there's a long way to go in order to 
convince people that Earth observation data is something you can grab and get on with. And we've talked about this. There was that blog post a couple of episodes ago that we talked about where the blog post was saying that Earth observation data, it was harder to use than they'd expected. And yes, I, I still think it is. Here's a, an anecdote as we're in chat mode. Um, I was on the train. <laughs> I was on the train on Friday and this woman next to me started a conversation and she asked what I did. And I said, oh, I process satellite imagery. And she looked a bit blank. And I said, oh, do you know what Google Earth is? And she went, oh, my God, do you work for Google Earth? And I said, well, no, I don't. But um, I could do. No, <laughs> I don't. But I do that type of thing. And she was totally blown away. She was like, oh, my God, that's, that's such a using that data is so great because you can see all these various different things. And she, it is that typical anecdote where people understand what Google Earth is. But she was, you know, she was really fired up and she was going like, oh, yeah, I've zoomed into my mum and dad's house and we could see all this and we could slide the slider back in time and see. And I was like, yeah, so I do all that. But, you know, for other companies or for governments or, or whoever. So I think it is becoming more and more, not second nature, but it, it's raised in the consciousness of more and more people. And I think that this year has really helped push things forward. I'm positive about 2019, but I think... 2020 is going to be a big-ish year. Our danger is that we're very focused on how we can utilise the data and make it easier for ourselves. But the general user, the non-specialist, non-geospatial type user, is it getting easier for them? I'll tell you the way it's going to get easier, I think, is the development of QGIS. The number of people that I've spoken to this year who go, oh, I'm not a GIS person, but I use QGIS. And when you go and ask them, well, okay, so what do you do in QGIS? And it, they say, oh, well, you know, I, I don't really do satellite imagery, but I've managed to follow a few online tutorials about um, how to use a certain plugin to download things. And, yeah. and you think, okay, so to be honest, you, you say you're not a GIS person, but you're doing some pretty good GIS things there. You know, when you've got some of these plugins that we've mentioned over the course of the year, in particular, the one that we mentioned in the last episode that links Google Earth Engine into QGIS. I mean, there are some really amazing things out there. And I've seen ones that that link hydrology models, and they're starting to do 3D visualizations and look at linking sort of animations and of your geospatial data. I wonder whether actually the way that more people are going to start using Earth observation data is going to be by bringing in web services and other things through different plugins and just using QGIS. QGIS is going to end up being the de facto interface through which people do all their geospatial interaction with. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think mm, maybe not. <laughs> no, no, I don't I don't know the answer. But I mean I, I, I do think we're sort of stepping stepping on the toes of what we talked about last time. I think there's just there's quite a rush to host and replicate data at the moment. Maybe I'm sort of exaggerating that, but there's only so many people that are going to use a portal. And yeah. They generally tend to be on the way to being an expert because you have to commit the time to it. Yeah, interesting. So other things that we talked about last time were hyperspectral data, hey. which doesn't seem to have changed <laughs> at all no. this year, and video data. So video data is interesting because we. this is one of those things that Three years ago, I think I wrote a blog post and talked about what's going to be the tipping point for video data. And we talked about it you know, very early on. And then we said, this could be the year. And I have seen hardly anything about video data in 
2019. That's not to say that there isn't something about it, but I feel that I'm less excited by that now than I was three years ago. Yeah, I agree. I wonder whether or not video data is being captured and is being sold directly into, you know, I'm guessing it's pretty, pretty expensive, but being sold directly into organizations that are willing to, to pay a hefty amount for it. Or I wonder whether or not it's just not as successful as people thought. It's, it's really difficult to know, isn't it? I agree with you that there hasn't been much noise made about it this year, at least not that I've seen. Okay, yeah. So that was sort of what we talked about in the past. I made a note of all the things that I see more prevalent in 2019. And there I've seen four trends. Uh, The first one is deep learning. And this seems to be developing at a faster rate. And a lot more is talked about deep learning uh, in more concrete terms. So there's more, there seems to be more competition. There's more entrance to the market and there's more accessibility to deep learning Another trend that I saw is a lot of the startups that are spun out of America, a lot of them have had more investment rounds in 2019, which I guess is hardly surprising. But there seem to be more pivots and slightly away from Earth observation to more generic geospatial problems or more data science type problems. I don't know if it's an admission that the analytics that they can derive from satellite data is more limited than perhaps first thought or that the information that they been working on and the tools that they have available to them enables them to look at other problems in a new way. The third thing that I saw was the uh, open source conferences, especially the Phosphor G events. There were a significant uptick in EO talks and posters. Yeah, definitely. I also think that's probably true in the in the commercial GIS software. I certainly saw it at some of the events that I was considering going to, that there was definitely an EO section, if not a stream that was going on. The final thing was that there was much more about bigger events bringing people together. So there was the East Living Planet thing, which was, um, I think it was in Milan. That seemed to be a much bigger event than I was anticipating. The Google Earth Engine User Summit had merged with the Geo for Good event. Um, that was pretty big. The Phosphor G event seemed to, to keep growing at an incredible pace. And the AGU that, that we just mentioned earlier, so it seems to be quite a big event. That can only be a good thing, I think, for, for communications and, and sharing of knowledge. There's certainly so many papers that seem to come out. It's been an interesting year for drones, sort of autonomous data collection, let's put it like that. So I've seen, again, a, a real uptick in number of people who are using drones. But the interesting thing for me is that it ranges from the sort of very small lightweight with a a tiny little camera like a GoPro or something on the bottom, Hmm. right the way up to the more heavy proper inverted commas commercial type drones with decent sensors on collecting over largish areas. It seems like that whole business is beginning to come together and people understand what a drone is. They understand the type of imagery they can get. People are now adding different types of sensors on there, which is from our point of view is amazing because we're now being able to get very high resolution, very bespoke imagery from these systems. And I think it'll be really interesting to try and understand what's happening in 2020 and 2021 in terms of that whole business. And there's been a lot of acquisition this year. Will that slow down or will it continue? Will there be a lot of competition in terms of the cost of data capture? I get the impression that data processing is relatively well serviced for at the moment either commercially or through open source software 
So I, I, I'm just interested. I don't know enough about drones, but it, they fascinate me in terms of the business opportunities that they have. One of the things that I've seen this year that has interested me quite a lot is that large organizations and large commercial institutions have been, in my experience, and this is anecdotal, but have been preferentially going to open source first and saying, well, we're going to use open data. What does the open source software allow us to do with that? Can we develop on top of that? And that, I think, is fascinating. We've had conversations with people who are involved in commercial software, and it would be really interesting to try and understand how that business model is coping with this whole focus on using open source software. Now, from my perspective, all of these institutions and organizations and companies using open source software then calls into question, well, how are they giving back? They're using all of this software, which is great, and that you know the developers want people to use it. But at the same mm. time, I think there should be some mechanism that they're giving back a little bit, either financially or through code or through uh, bug reports or or through documentation or whatever. And I might be being naive here, but I I think there should be a real ecosystem of people who are all coming together to use this software in a a way that is beneficial to everybody. And how likely do you think that is? Um, On a scale of one to 10, where 10 is highly likely, probably about three, (laughs) if not two. So do you think the trend is that that open source is being seen as free? It depends who you talk to. So I think from the techies, it's seen as being really flexible. That is the reason why they're suggesting it gets used. But more and more, I'm seeing that the people who don't necessarily have their fingers on the keyboards typing up code are saying, oh, well, we should use open source first because that will save us money on a project and it makes us more competitive. I can see that argument. You know, as a business that also uses open source software, then yeah, I would hope it made me slightly more competitive as well. But you know, I make sure I give back in as many ways as I can. I suppose in some ways, it's just a case of maybe people like you and me. But when we hear about large companies doing this, we just sort of say, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. That's great that you're using that software. How are you how are you giving back to the team that's produced it? Yeah, okay, that's interesting. As an individual, I find that quite hard because my resources are limited. So I rely upon the open source software to be able to work. Yes, but you give back through the, the blog posts that you do. So you're explaining to people who are new to that software how to use that software. You spend time okay. working out how to use the software in order to write documentation that people can follow. So that, that's a form of giving back. I'm not saying that everybody has to give money. It's, you yeah, just I, need to interact with the project a bit. Okay, so I found this article. It's basically an article on Geospatial World called Who's Buying All That Satellite Imagery? And It talks about the revenue breakdowns, a series of pie charts and stuff. So out of 100%, how much in percentage terms goes to defense spending on EO? Of the entire defense budget? No, of of the commercial EO market. Oh, okay. Commercial EO market. Um, I know, 30%. 61 percent so it's yeah it's more than all the others combined right and out of that 61 percent 40 percent of that 61 percent so not 40 percent but you know the the breakdown of real money that's spent in north america so almost half of the defense spending of the commercial market is being spent in north america on defense so all the other sectors are sort of playing for 
what 39% of the of the market and that's interesting in the sense that who is going to buy all this data at some point someone's going to have to say the market can't take another cubesat company the global space activities in 2018 the total revenues was 360 billion dollars so well a lot of money hey um of which satellite services contained a part of 126.5 billion so you know at slightly less than half i, mm-hmm. I would say and ground equipment takes 125.2 billion out of that 360 billion how much goes in earth observation data and the answer is 2.1 billion so 2.1 billion out of 360 billion yeah wow and of, okay of that 2.1 billion defense again is um being accounted for for 61%. And while I said earlier, keep in mind that pie chart from Jonathan Amos, because the the Jonathan Amos pie chart from ESA shows Earth observation taking 2.5 billion of the total subscriptions, euros, telecommunications taking 1.5 billion, and navigation taking 0.72 billion. Um, Without banging home the point, a lot of money is going into Earth observation Whereas the market for Earth observation is a fraction of the telecommunications and navigation market. And if it wasn't for the governmental components of Earth observation, without them, I think we'd be in a big mess. This is something we can do through the podcast, but I think we need to highlight some of the governmental Earth observation programs that are out there and what they're doing. And I don't mean the data collection and the, and the dissemination of data. I mean how it's actually being used by which organizations around the world. Maybe we're looking at the market from the wrong angle. And we need to look at it as something else. Yeah. So this is why I think maybe it's already there. And that there is a market, but it's not a it's not a commercial market. It's not one that makes money. It's just one that does good for the planet, um, and is is sort of being used by governments quietly to just get on with the purpose of governing. Maybe Earth observation never has to be self fulfilling market because the government governmental side of it will just use the data as it needs to. Today, seventy five percent plus of all commercial imagery purchases are made by public institutions. Okay. But the trends are that there is a shift from institutional to commercial customers. With all of this talk of reduced cost to launch, reduced cost to host, computing power getting cheaper, the the cost to buy this data falling through the floor, the thing that everyone's going for is one of two things, either brand new usage of this data or brand new customers of this data. Like I said earlier, I think that 2020 is going to be a super exciting year. I think more people will be using the data. I think more people will understand it when we go up to them and say we process satellite data. They'll begin to understand what that means. It's going to be a big year, I think, for some of the deep learning work and the platforms that that's based on. Hopefully, hyperspectral will come out. My gut feeling is the market can't sustain the number of companies that are trying to operate in it at the moment without a seed change in users. I just think still that the majority of work is project-based and the success of selling a service is hard. There's a deluge, not now of data, but of 
people and ideas that say, I've got this great idea to build a service. For, and I, I think that that was probably a good idea five years ago. But may, maybe I'm going to be proved wrong. But it, it just feels like there's quite a lot of people now competing for, uh, as I just sort of highlighted with those numbers, not a massive pie. It's going to be a good year next year, I think. And it'll be interesting to see where we, we end up. I think that's a good place to, to stop. Okay, so before we finish, I wanted to give a bit of a shout out to following people who've been on the podcast this year. So Chris Holmes, Morgan Crowley, Matthias Moore, Robin Wilson, Marcus Nettler, Simon Agas, Kate Doyle, and Dr. Kai Bird. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast in 2019. It's been a real pleasure to have the caliber of you all on the podcast. And it's been a real education for me and I hope you for Alistair as well. Without you guys, we are certainly a, a weaker podcast and we only seek to engage and build a, a community. Because I listened to the podcast earlier, I don't know if Alistair remembers, but I, I thought I would jog his memory that he said, And he was very pleased to announce this, that at the back end of 2018, we'd had 10,000 downloads at that point. (laughs) And we had 250 followers on Twitter. For us, it's been an exceptional year. We're now over 70,000 downloads. So thanks to everybody for listening. I really hope that we are part of the debate. And as ever, as as I often say, we get things wrong and hold our hands up to say that we do that. Um, the other thing I want to say is that I don't know how you feel about this, Alistair, but I, I do want to sort of talk about at the end of 2019, how we operate. So we're really grateful for your support. And we were really fortunate in 2019 to, to win an RSPSOC award. And this has significantly helped us cover the hosting costs of this podcast, plus allowed us to, well, <laughs> upgrade my recording equipment, at least, <laughs> which um, hopefully someone is benefiting from, not just me. But for us to be a success in, in the long term, it's critical that we can stay self-employed. And we don't often sort of mention this on the podcast, but if you do have projects or, or training requirements or consulting work um, that either of us can help with, then you can find our contact details on our websites. You can find us on Twitter or LinkedIn. The podcast is one of the things that we do to, to, to hopefully give back to the community. As Andrew said, thank you to all the listeners and all the contributors as well. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Map underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. You've already done that. Thanks for listening and happy Christmas if you celebrate that. That's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. See you next year. See you. Bye-bye. Frantically Googling Future Sentinels, which has given me some X-Men stuff, of course.
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.